If you want to open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 9, we're studying through the book of Hebrews. We have gone through the first 10 verses of chapter 9. We're going to be in chapter 11. Um, One thing else I want to bring to your attention, we support the Pregnancy Center here in our community. We are also a house of refuge. Um, And simply put, what that means is if you are a woman in this fellowship, a young lady, uh, uh, or or mid-aged or whatever, it's not your age doesn't matter. I don't know why I said young lady, but um, if you if you get pregnant, and um, we're here to support you, and to come alongside you, and uh, to walk with you through that, um, we 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 align with God who is for life, and we're for life. We're life, we believe that life begins at conception, and and we support and sustain uh, 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 life all the way through. Uh, the last moment of breath that comes from the hand of God at His timing in His way. And I mention that today because um, uh, there are some current uh, bills before our state legislator um, that are anti-life bills. That's all I want to speak about right now. The reason why I mention it to you is because now's the time to be praying as the church. Um, We want to be practical in our love and ministry to those women who are uh, pregnant or, or maybe considering abortion or are hopeless and don't know exactly what to do after getting the, um, uh, the, the uh, news that they're pregnant. For many women, it's an exciting time. For other women, it can be a very scary and desperate time. And, and we support uh, all women, no matter what the circumstances were by which they came, became pregnant. Um, <clears throat> and, and, and so because we're for life, we can, we can enact in practical ways, and we do, um, but you know, there's no, there's no way none of us can go up there and change the legislators' hearts and minds, but Christ can. God can. And so as a church family, I'm letting you know about this as a call to prayer. Please be praying for what's going on right now with these anti-life um, legislations that are before um, our state senate. So I wanted to let you know about that. If you have any more questions about that, uh, you can speak to me about that. Marcus, I think you know about it too, right? So Marcus and Jenny Button know about it, and maybe others do as well, and we can give you more information about that. But <clears throat> please be praying. All right. Let's get into today's study. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll get right into it. Father, thank You for each and every person here in person, those who are watching and joining online. And Lord, I even want to ask that these prayers would go into the future, Lord, for anyone else down the road who may tune in and listen and watch through any avenue of social media. I pray, Lord, uh, for us uh, and for any other people that this message might reach that um, lives would be changed. That as we as followers of Your Son Jesus, who live by faith and um, are, are alive because of Your grace, and have hope of eternal life because of Your grace. May we, may we Father, be um, blessed and um, in a way today that changes our lives once again. Lord, that we would see the hope that we have in Your ministry as great high priests and what that means to us today. <clears throat> Lord, I want to pray for the Royal Gorge Vineyard and Pastor Greg Swearingen. And I ask God for um, him to be filled with your spirit as he steps into that role of leader, of, uh, as an under-shepherd, Lord, of, of the church there, our brothers and sisters that meet at Royal Gorge Vineyard. Pray for health and well-being and blessing upon them. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to start off by saying that 
I really believe that the information that's found, we've been building up to this part of Scripture for quite a while. And not that we've not had some wonderful truths and some um, probably life-changing revelations. Um, And maybe today what you're hearing isn't something new for the first time, but I would pray that it would be a revelation to to your life today in your heart and your mind where you would be changed in a way that you didn't think you ever could be as a follower of Jesus Christ. I think there's an awesome and encouraging and exciting message here that if we, if we um, understand what's being made known to us, that we can have a new sense of peace and joy and freedom to really know what it means to live and walk by faith in the grace that God has, made, has given to us, that He continues to give to us day by day. So with that being said, when we began chapter 9, we looked at the first 10 verses which told us about the tabernacle. Literally, the earthly sanctuary where the Levitical priests um, ministered the Mosaic Covenant. And in doing so, we talked about the lampstand, the table, the showbread, um, the altar of incense, and the golden censer, which were all located in the first part of that tabernacle, of the earthly tabernacle that eventually was the temple that stood there in Jerusalem. And then we talked about the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, which was the lid on top of the Ark, the box. And then we talked about the three items that were kept inside the Ark. And these were the golden pots of manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and then of course the stone tablets that God had written His laws on. And all these things were kept behind the veil of separation in the tabernacle. It was the innermost part of the tabernacle. It was a place called the most holy or the holy of alls or the holiest of all. And because these items were kept in the ark, these three items kept in the ark, when you read through the Old Testament, you see that it's referred to um, not only as the ark of the covenant, but also as the ark of the testimony. And, and the reason why is because these items that were inside the Ark of the Testimony or the Ark of the Covenant, they testified. They were, these items were witnesses before God against the Hebrew people as it reminded them, right? Because the Ark of the Covenant was inside the Holy of Holies where God would manifest His presence. And, and we don't want to go back through all of that. We've been studying through all of that up to now. But it was, it was a testimony or a witness before God against the Hebrew people as these things reminded and testified of the nation's failures, of their weaknesses. And this is because the manna was a reminder of God's provision, but also a reminder of the people's um, lack of gratitude, their ungratefulness for what God had provided. You can go and read about it in the book of Exodus. And also, you can read about Aaron's rod that, that budded. It was, it was, it, it, this, this miraculous event took place at a time when the nation of Israel rebelled against God's authority. And so that item was a reminder of their rebellion against God's authority. And then lastly, of course, the stone tablets of the covenant reminded Israel of their failure to keep the commands of God, God's divine law. <clears throat> but at the same time, these things, these reminders were also a picture because of where they were placed of how God through covenant is able to contain. God through covenant was able to contain all of their faults and all of their weaknesses. 
Furthermore, the fact that they were being covered by the blood of the atoning sacrifice, which was sprinkled with blood every year upon the mercy seat, was a reminder that through God's mercy and God's grace, He accepts the blood of another as a payment for their own blood. Their blood was the requirement for sin according to the law, right? And ultimately, this was a testimony, I think, in addition to the people of God's desire and plan to provide a once and for all sacrifice as it pointed forward prophetically, in a sense, um, that um, to a better blood, to a better sacrifice that would do so much more than just temporarily cover sin. And these reminders are testimonies to us today as well. Because we have failures. We have weaknesses. We sin, right? It's a testimony to us because of all of our failures and weaknesses, we're told clearly that they are sustained and contained in a new covenant. A new covenant which has been established in the blood of Jesus. And here it is as we kind of shift our focus now. I said it when we started talking about Jesus' priestly ministry is that we as believers, we... We spend a lot of time and energy focusing on Jesus' sacrifice, His death, right? His burial, and His resurrection. We do. And we should. But I don't think we spend as much attention or as much time or focus often enough on the priestly ministry of Jesus. And so we know that this new covenant, Jesus has said it Himself, is established in His blood, the blood of Jesus. But this covenant is built up by His priestly ministry. And that's what we're focusing on. That's what we're looking at. And I believe that this knowledge, this truth, this understanding, and all that it encompasses has, the, again, the, I think the power to change our lives in radical, radical ways today. And so as we considered the earthly tabernacle with its sacred furnishings and its divine services, as uh, verse 1 kind of pointed out as we began this chapter, we saw that they were only symbolic, right? The earthly tabernacle, the divine services, everything that were in them were only symbolic. And they could never, because they were just symbolic, they had no actual power to do anything. They could never perfect the people or provide a way for them to enter into the presence of God. And because of this, we see that they're not the focal point of this chapter. They're only mentioned in order to give us a comparison that we might Now look at the contrasting of the earthly sanctuary where the Levite priests ministered to the heavenly sanctuary where Jesus is now ministering as our great high priest. And these two two sanctuaries are now being compared to each other because this chapter continues to detail the superiority of Jesus' priestly ministry. And Jesus is once again shown to be better because He ministers this new covenant which we've already saw is full of better promises. He ministers it from a better sanctuary a heavenly sanctuary not an earthly sanctuary and as we prepare and continue to go through the rest of this chapter i think it's necessary to highlight once again the five reasons found in first 10 in the first 10 verses for why the earthly tabernacle is inferior we've already covered that i'm not going to go into detail but i'm going to restate them for you for those who are keeping notes and it can be fresh in our mind when we begin to look at the contrasting points that are being made the first is the first reason why the earthly tabernacle was inferior is because it was an earthly sanctuary the second is that the earthly sanctuary and the things that were in it were only copies of the real things that were in heaven 
The third was that the tabernacle was inaccessible to the common people. No one had access to God. God was there, but you could not come into His presence. The fourth is the fact that it was temporary, right? And this aligns with the idea of it being you know, an earthly tabernacle. It's temporary. It's of this earth. And, and, and not just in the sense of the, the carnal sense of, of, of things being corrupted and deteriorating, but temporary in the sense that God from day one had ordained that it was only to serve for a time and for a purpose that was to point forward and it was always designed to come to an end. Furthermore, the fifth reason that we're given is that the divine services and the sacrifices that took place in the earthly tabernacle Hear this, they could not change a person's heart. Now think about that. When you came to Christ, when you and I put our faith in Christ, we became new. Our sins were forgiven. We were changed. And we are being changed from the inside out through His sacrifice, through the ongoing work of His great ministry as our great High Priest. This was not possible with the old sanctuary, with any of the Old Testament sacrifices. None of these things could bring forth a change. Those people were stuck with themselves. I remember hating who I was, who I had become. Wanting to be different. Ashamed of the things that I had done with no power to change who I was on the inside. Not even to, to, to curb my behavior. My appetites ruled, if you will, the way that I live. But once I came to Christ, things were different. That wasn't available through the Old Testament sacrifices or the divine services. They only provided all these sacrifices. They only provided, we'll talk about this with Scripture later on, a temporary covering for a person's sin. And they could not cleanse a person from their sins. And as we begin to compare these things to the heavenly sanctuary, I want to point out that the deficiencies of the earthly sanctuary left a huge void in the lives of the people who worship God. And this void is spoken of here in verse 9, which is really our transitional verse, when it says that the services done in it, meaning the offerings and sacrifices, could not perfect in regards to the conscience. Even if everything was good on the outside, it was still not right on the inside, and people knew it. They knew it. Now the conscience is described as the physiological faculty that distinguishes between right and wrong right we've even had the we've even at times have said you know people who are in prison for heinous crimes is like they have no conscience they don't have this physiological faculty to distinguish between right and wrong i don't know if that's true but i know that the bible says this that sin sears it hardens our conscience that we can become numb and hardened to knowing what is good and evil and right and wrong. But nevertheless, the conscience being described in this way is, 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 is something we need to look at because the word conscience is derived from two Latin words that literally mean with knowledge. Consista. With knowledge. And so even if the sacrifices, think about this, that were of the earthly sanctuary of the Old Covenant, even if they were made in perfect accordance to the covenantal laws, they never produced an inner peace for the person 
they were being offered for. And this is because these sacrifices could not make a person righteous. It could not make them perfect in regards to their standing with God. In fact, the Day of Atonement, the the big day that built up from all the other offerings and sacrifices when the high priest went into the holiest place behind the veil with the blood of the animal that had been sacrificed for sins, that day was always a reminder that the sin debt that you owed was not paid for by the blood of these animals that have been sacrificed. Because here's the reason why. The primary reason why is you still were not permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies into God's presence. And the sacrifices had to be offered continually year after year after year. In short, a perfect conscience can only come from knowing this. A perfect conscience before God can only come from knowing that the sin debt we owe has been reconciled. What does that mean? Fully and completely paid for. And there is no earthly tabernacle for this task to be done. And there is no earthly sacrifice good enough to assure our conscience that we are without guilt for the wrong things that we've done. Give it a try. Maybe you have. Maybe you've tried to do everything right and base your righteousness before God on what you do. And I promise you, when we do that, we stand with the knowledge and the understanding that it's not good enough. It's never good enough. But there's hope, guys. Right? There's hope as the earthly things were symbolic of the Messiah who was to come. All these earthly things were symbolic. They were forerunners. They painted forward to the Messiah who would come, who was to come, who is our perfect sacrifice and symbolic of the heavenly tabernacle where Jesus now ministers with, the Bible says, His own blood. And now we'll take a look at Jesus in relationship to the tabernacle in these final verses and see that where the tabernacle was incomplete in bringing man into the presence of God, Jesus is complete in every way. Allowing for us to have a cleansed conscience. And then to enter boldly into the fellowship Enter boldly into fellowship with our Creator. And so we read in verse 11, but Christ came as a great high priest of the good things to come. You go, what is those good things? I want some of those good things. But Christ has come, Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come. With the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood. He entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, He is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. So in these verses, the deficiencies of the old covenant sanctuary are being matched with the superiorities of the new covenant sanctuary. And in every way, as the writer of the author Hebrews puts forth this question, in every way the ministry of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary is shown and revealed to be better. And the first contrast being made, look here in verse 11, it points out the greater and more perfect tabernacle with Jesus ministers. It's not made with hands. It's not of this creation. This creation. 
And and it's probably obvious, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's probably obvious to say that something that is not of this creation, think about it, which is incorruptible and eternal, is greater and more perfect in so many ways than something of this creation which is corruptible and will not last. I've shared this example with the previous service, so I'm going to share it with you. So my wife and I have been married for 30 years. We've always driven really junky cars. All of my friends be like, when are you going to buy your wife a nice car? My wife, when are you going to give me a nice car? It's not that God's not provided. We've just, maybe me, has just not seen the value in having a car worth more than a few thousand dollars. Well, all of our kids out, and God's blessed us, and I wanted to bless my wife. God's provided for us. And so, um, not that I did it, but we decided and we made a decision. We bought a car. We bought a nice car. Not a new car, but a mostly new car. And it's pretty awesome. The air conditioner works. (laughs) It has heat. And I'm, 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 that's funny, but I mean, like, our, that's, I mean, those are luxuries for sure. But the cars that we've had, they don't, they don't do that. There's no dents, there's no scratches, but it's. I'm here to tell you, it's uh, corruptible. It's of this creation. This nice new car of ours that we had less than two weeks. We're driving down the road back from Colorado Springs, and we went and visited my son. It's his fault. <laughs> I get on the highway to come home, and you want to know what happened? A stone flew up and hit my windshield. (laughs) Corruptible. (laughs) Right? You get the point. Something that's incorruptible and eternal, guys, is certainly better, even than the most awesome things of this life, which are corruptible and not eternal. (laughs) But listen, when we see that the heavenly sanctuary, more importantly... The holy place of refuge, right? The holy place of refuge from harm. When we see that where Jesus ministers is not only an eternal location, but we also see this, it's our final destination, it means a whole lot more. Our final home is incorruptible and eternal. The point is, it's not just about a location. It's about a destination, our eternal destination. And the reason why that's awesome is because your cars won't ever get a stone chip if there's cars in heaven. (laughs) It's an incorruptible place. And more importantly, because of that, this is what it means. In all seriousness, it's a place that's absent of fear. All fear, all anxiety, all worry. That's part of this incorruptible world. It's not a part of the heavenly sanctuary. How about this? It's absent of sickness, pain, suffering, and death. And equally important, it's full. It's absent of those things, but it's full of everlasting peace and joy. Our eternal destination so much better. And when Jesus, who is eternal, came as our high priest of the good things to come, we through Him, the Bible says here, we become partakers of those good things. Which according to verse 14, look at it, it is rooted in having a cleansed conscience that sets us free from doing did works so that we might serve the living God. 
In other words, where the earthly tabernacle and the animal sacrifices that were made in it were insufficient to change a person and make a way for them to to enter into the presence of God, now the sacrifice of Jesus that He made and brought into the heavenly tabernacle is more than sufficient. Where these things were insufficient to change and to make a way for us to enter into the presence of God, it's now sufficient through Jesus. Because sacrifice that Jesus made of His body when He presented Himself, as it says here, to God without spot, right? The sacrifice that Jesus made of His body And His blood does what everything else cannot do. And the first thing it does in verse 12, if you look here, we are told that by His perfect blood, Jesus entered the most holy place once and for all. And what did He obtain for us that we get to have a good thing? It says eternal redemption. I'm here to tell you that that if we don't have that, if you don't have eternal redemption, if you've not put your faith in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that He made for you, if you think you have everything else, if you don't have this, you will have nothing. Eternal redemption. Nothing else matters. There is more than this. There are the good, other good things, but this is it. This is, this is the starting point. Meaning by Jesus' sacrifice, what does this mean? By Jesus' sacrifice, our sins have been paid for. We've been eternally redeemed from the debt that we owed and saved from the eternal judgment that we all deserve as a result of our sin. And this is because the sinless blood of Jesus makes the way for us to be purified, is what we're told. Literally, it makes the way for us to be forgiven and changed on the inside to become these new creations, spiritually born again into new life. And this is what we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, which says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What a good thing as a result of this new covenant, this great high priest who ministers in a better sanctuary. A new creation. And because of this, we've been justified through our faith in Jesus and have been given, hear this, a right standing with God. Let me put it this way. This is mind-blowing to me when I put it this way. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we have become partakers of these good things. We have the right to stand before God. The Creator of the universe. And don't let anyone else tell you otherwise because this is what the blood of Jesus affords to us. A right standing before God. The right to stand before Him. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 9, it tells us this when it says, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, and yet perhaps for a good man, a good man, someone would even dare to die. But listen to this. God demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not that God looked into our lives and said, He's almost there. She's almost there. Just a little bit more good things and I'll come in and do something for them. 
As if it was an earned or merited or rewarded thing. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us much more than having been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. Now I want to point out that the word cleanse here in verse 14, it is the Greek word katharido, rizo. And it means this. I think Josh has got a definition up there. To free from the defilement of sin and from faults. To be free. To set free from the defilement of sin and from faults. What's the defilement of sin? It's manifolded in this life, by the way, which you guys have all probably reaped the fruit of your own sinfulness. But the greater aspect of it, the defilement from sin in this life is eternal death. Yet to have this cleansing means to be free from the defilement of sin and from faults. It goes on to say to be purified from wickedness and to free from the guilt of sin. Now I want to be very clear on something. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and unrighteousness still today. And the conviction is a good thing because the conviction draws us by the Holy Spirit to the place of repentance. But guilt and shame and condemnation, you've been freed from that through the blood of Jesus. Through the ministry of the work of our great High Priest that is happening still today. And more importantly, this word, this word in the Greek, katharizu, is a word that is written in the present and active tense. Hear this, meaning it is a thing that is continually going on. It is continually happening. And this is important because even though we now have this right standing before God, we have this right to stand before God, the fact of the matter is that we are still sinners. And because we're sinners, we do what? We sin. We sin. And so what does that mean? We're in need of an intercessor. One who we read here who offers up Himself as a once and for all perpetual offering for our sins. And this understanding, this reminder that Jesus paid for it with His own life brings to us an ongoing cleansing to our conscience. It reveals knowledge. It gives us knowledge of who we are in Him. Of our right standing in Him. Of us being justified and forgiven and accepted in Him. And so through Jesus, we've been purified. We've been given a clean, a clean conscience. That's, but I don't think we always live with that knowledge and understanding. Please hear this. This is the life-changing part of it, I think, for us to believers today. We have access to a cleansed conscience with the truth of what we're being told here through the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we have the promise of the eternal sanctuary as our final destination. And so this verse 15 says, and for this reason, a cleansed conscience, right? The promise of an eternal sanctuary with our final destination through eternal redemption. For this reason, He's the mediator of the new covenant. By means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And in light of these contrasts between the earthly and heavenly sanctuary, we can clearly see that the ministry of Jesus is effective to deal with our sins. That's what the author is telling us. The ministry of Jesus is effective to deal with our sins. Furthermore, His finished work on earth is finished. On the cross, Jesus said it. It's finished. But His finished work on the earth and His continuing work 
of intercession in heaven, in the heavenly sanctuary, these things are sufficient and efficient for us. Yet as we read on, we are shown once again that the ministry of Jesus is based on a costly sacrifice. He paid for it, not us. But there was a payment that had to be made. And so in verse 16, it says, for where there is a testament, again, some comparisons, right? Where there is a testament, where there is a covenant, there is the need or the necessity, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since no power since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats with the water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled them both, the book, the people, and the book itself, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise, he sprinkled the blood both the, with, with blood, both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Therefore, verse 23, it was necessary that the copies of the things in heaven, right, these foreshadowings of the things in heaven, these copies of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But, or however, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these a cost you know when we finished chapter 7 and we started chapter 8 this is when we began to talk about covenant and covenant relationship and at that time i pointed out that i think covenant the idea of covenant is far removed from our minds because societally we don't have this going on as a matter of fact though probably the only experience a short from our covenant relationship with god which we're reading and studying about that we probably ever partake of is through marriage the holy sanctified covenant relationship of marriage the covenantal relationship of marriage that one man and one woman are called to enter into and so with that i want to remind us that that a covenant is a spiritual agreement between two people who are looking to give to one another for the betterment of the union while a contract which is something we're probably more familiar with we don't want to confuse the two, so this is why I'm pointing it out. A contract is a legal agreement between two people who are looking to get something from one another. I said in the past that it's this if-then thing. If you do this, then I'll do that. Guys, that's not marriage. That's not covenant marriage. If, if that's how your marriage is operating, you need to make an appointment with Curtis, your associate pastor, <laughs> and get some marriage counseling. And hear what God's Word says. I'll meet with you too. Or ask somebody who you have respect their marriage and see what covenant's about and how to work through that. I think we all fall into that in our if-then. If you, if you take out the trash, you know, whatever. Stop it. That's not what covenant is. You're missing out on the fullness of what God has for your marriage relationship. And that mindset then will also transcend into our covenantal relationship with God and it will pervert our thinking. But in addition to this, 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 this knowledge, what I want to point out is that um, God has called us into covenant relationship with Him, but in light of what we're now reading, it's also important to understand that the word used here in verse 15 for covenant also carries this idea of a last will and testament. That's the transition comparison. And in regards to this line of thinking, we're now being asked to consider an example for the new covenant that Jesus now mediates. Okay? 
And we're asked, being asked to consider this, how a person's will, their testament, their last will and testament, is not enforced until the one who established the will dies. And I'm grateful for that. It's been 30 years that my wife and I have been married, and something else we did this last year, which is where we're taking big steps. We got a will. Our kids all, can you guys get your will done? You travel out of country, you go on a missions trip, uh, it's going to be a real problem for us to get your stuff if you're dead and don't have a will. Okay, point taken. But they don't get none of my stuff until I'm dead. Right? That's typically how wills work. So we read that it was necessary in light of that for this inheritance, right, that we receive as a result of this new covenant, it was necessary for Jesus to die so that the terms of the new covenant might be enacted. And in light of this, I think we can better understand why Jesus had foretold or told His disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, that the new covenant would be established in His blood that would be shed for who? For us. And in verse 18, it takes this thought and it transitions with a comparison and points out that even the people, the book of the law, the eternal sanctuary, with all of its vessels of the first covenant, even these things were dedicated with the sprinkling of the blood. It was foretelling of better things to come. Sprinkling with blood, meaning with the death of something of something in verses 19 through 21, which we read here, it's literally taken from Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8, and it goes on to explain this very point. But the main point of all of this is to say that the shedding of Jesus' blood is God's answer to man's sin problem. The shedding of Jesus' blood is God's answer to mine and yours sin problem. And the truth is, I want to really emphasize this, the truth is is that we should be more focused on God's answer than we should be on man's problem. And I say that because I don't think we do that. I don't do that. Here's what I mean. When I sin, you know what I focus on? My sin. Oh, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I'm a wretched sinner. When you sin, what do you typically focus on? First, your sin. How about when other people sin? We're pretty good at it. Oh, look at what you just did. And we usually bring guilt and shame and condemnation into that equation in some form or some fashion. And we must stop focusing on the problem and focus on God's answer. The answer is more important. We should be more focused on God's answer. The blood of Jesus the sacrifice of Jesus, the ongoing intercessory work of Jesus, then we should be on our sin problem. And in regards to God's answer to man's sin problem, listen to this. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 25 says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Really? The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law, the law itself, the first covenant bore witness to it, and the prophets, and even the righteousness of God. How has it been revealed, he says here? Through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God that we've become partakers of, that we enter into, that we call other people enter into, is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all. Here's the wonderful part of it. Not to just some, but to all. And on all who believe. He says, for there's no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We all have a sin problem. Get over it, so to speak. Give people the answer to God's, God's answer to sin problem. All of, there's no difference. All of sin falling short of the glory of God. Being justified freely. I think we, we, we highlight justified in the word grace and the word redemption. But highlight freely. It's, it's been, been justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God set forth. It didn't come without a cost. It's free to us. But it was expensive to the Son, to God the Father. Because God set it all forth as a propitiation by His blood, by Jesus Christ, by His sacrifice, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed. Hear that last verse. This is what it's saying. So even the sins of those who were of the first covenant, who were alive prior to the coming of the Messiah, they were waiting for the payment that was to be found in the Messiah. God's answer for the sin problem. And here in Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul points out that it was their faith in God's provision, sounds familiar, right? That kept God's eyes from looking upon their sin as He patiently passed over their sins until the time of redemption. And this brings, brings forth an awesome phrase that we need to bring into our lives. It is the, this, this phrase, but now Jesus. He patiently passed over their sins until the time of redemption came. But now Jesus, who has passed on our inheritance through us by and through His death, He has been revealed. God's answer to our sin problem a once and all answer is Jesus and He's been revealed. But Jesus, you sin, I sin, but Jesus. People in this world are involved in all kinds of sin. We might go gross sin, perverted sin, really, really bad sin. But Jesus. Guys, but Jesus. Who has passed on our inheritance through His death He's been revealed. And in regards to this inheritance, think about it like any other inheritance. We should consider the fact that inheritance is typically willed to who? My inheritance is going to go to my kids. Sorry if that hurts your feelings. None of you are in my will. It's going to make it on right now. <laughs> yeah, my, you want my car. <laughs> it's got a broken windshield. Here's, here's what I mean by that. Think about it. What this means is that a person doesn't earn an inheritance. Do they? They don't earn it. If that was the case, my kids wouldn't be getting a thing from me. <laughs> they just happen to have my blood running through their veins. I'm just joking more than that, right? But think about it. You don't earn an inheritance. Rather, the bloodline qualifies a person for that in that sense. And unfortunately for those, or unfortunately for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we're now qualified, the Bible says, on the basis of adoption. On the basis of adoption. Listen again, maybe now for a fresh time, Galatians 4, verses 4-6, through because it testifies of this saying, but when the fullness of the time had come, 
God had appointed a time. He had appointed a Savior. It was all building up to it. When the fullness of that time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. This is the Gospel message. Born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth His Spirit, the Spirit of His Son, into your hearts crying out as adopted kids crying out, Daddy! Abba, Father. You know, I didn't really get this experience and, and I want to share a little thing with you. I had a little dream the other day and it reminded me of it. But our firstborn son, he's turning 30, he's getting married, we love him, he's doing good. But, you know, his first words weren't mommy and daddy. It, it, I think his first word was No. But shortly after that, you know, he called us Sean and Autumn. <laughs> People would be like, and Riley was, he walked at like really young and he walked good and he could talk. You know, Ty and Lori remember it as like this little guy walking around and it was a trip. But, um, and he would go, he'd call uh, us Sean and Autumn and people would be so disturbed by that. But that's what people called us, and that's what he heard. I didn't call Autumn mom, and she didn't call me dad. So it seemed natural, and we eventually broke him of that. <laughs> but <laughs> um, some of our other kids did. And it's a really awesome thing to hear your child speak those words for the first time. Mama. Daddy. And I had this dream. As you guys know, maybe some of you know now, I have a little grandbaby. <laughs> Selena May. And she's perfect. <laughs> and I had a dream about her the other day, and I woke up and I told my wife about it because I wanted her to be jealous. And I was, I was holding little Selena in my arms, and obviously it was not reality, dreams aren't, but um, my given, we'll see what it works out, but my given um, grandpa name is Papa. And, and of course, she's not said that yet, but in the dream, she's not speaking yet. And her first words as she's looking up to me and I have her mind is, Papa. I'm telling you what, man, that melted my heart in my dream. It's like, um, and then I, when I woke up, I'm like, I had a dream. Selena's first words were Papa. <laughs> but I think about that and think about my own kids and I think about this relationship, guys, that we've been called into, appointed to, invited into, inherited into, and, and God says, man, I put the Spirit of my Son into your heart where you now cry out to me in this way. Daddy. Think about the intimacy of that. Think about the joy in that. Think about if we will, and I don't want to put something on God that's not there, but I think it gives us these earthly relationships to reflect that relationship with us so that we might understand. Think about what that might do to the heart of God when we come to him with a cleansed conscience, going, here I am, dad. Daddy. So the superiorities of the heavenly sanctuary with its new covenant is ministered to us through Jesus is this. It's that it's heavenly and not earthly. And it reminds us that heaven where our dad is, is our destination. Furthermore, it's effective to deal with our sin and sufficient for us to come boldly into the presence of God and receive our inheritance as adopted sons and daughters. But as we close this chapter, we're going to see a couple other things. We're going to see that this heavenly sanctuary with its new covenant 
is also superior because its ministry represents fulfillment. And I'm here to say, I think this is something that everyone in the world is grasping for in some way, trying to find it in the world that the world doesn't have to offer. It's fulfillment. What is fulfilling you? And lastly, it's superior because it's final and complete. And so in verse 24, it says, For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Not that He should offer Himself often as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Now, as I read this, one thing that stands out to me is verse 24. I think this is probably the key verse in this whole whole discussion. It's, you see, it's, it's this. It's not, it's not hard for me to believe that when I think about heaven, about Jesus being there with God and the Holy Spirit there, I, I have this imagery in my mind that Jesus, He's appearing there in the presence of God. God the Father. I imagine the throne room. I think about the book of Revelation as it describes something. I see this glorious sight taking place. Tens of thousands of angels worshiping God. It's a mighty scene. But it's a little hard for me to wrap my mind around this idea that He appears there for me. It blows my mind. For us. But I want us to understand this is, this is life-changing, I think. I, I want us to understand that this is what the Word of God declares. And this is an awesome reality that has the power to change the way that we live our lives today. Because when we live, hear this, when we live with the dependency on this truth, when we live with a conscious awareness of this truth, it will bring a fulfillment into our lives that nothing else in this life can provide. And there will be a fulfillment like nothing else in this life that can provide. Because here's what's going to happen. If we live with this dependency on this truth, if we live with this conscious awareness of this truth, that God that Jesus Christ as our great high priest appears in the heavenly throne room of God for us, for me, we will stop trying to earn or work for God's favor. We will stop trying to earn or work for God's favor or acceptance and we will rest in the ongoing work of our great high priest who lives forevermore to make intercession for us. Furthermore, we will trust that God is working all things together for our good because we're called according to His purpose. And we will gladly accept if when you go, Jesus is in heaven for me. Interceding for me. Appearing there for me. We will gladly accept at that point all the love and all of the blessings that God wishes to give us because we know that His thoughts towards us are good and that He's given us a future and a hope. That's radical. I want to live like that. I want you to live like that. I think God wants us to live like that. See, the point is, is we're not depending on a high priest who is on earth who has to annually visit the Holy of Holies in a temporary sanctuary. We depend upon a heavenly high priest who has entered once and for all 
into the eternal sanctuary, heaven itself, and from this eternal heavenly sanctuary, He represents us before God, and we have this assurance that He always will do this for us. Last two verses. And, in, and it, is, it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. The worship team wants to come up. I'm going to close. You see, with those last two verses, we're being told the last reason for why the heavenly sanctuary, with its, with its new covenant, with its great high priest, is superior And it's because the work of Jesus is final. On the cross, Jesus said what? It's finished. It's done. The work of Jesus is final. Here's the reasons why. Final because of the one sacrifice of Jesus' blood has put away all sin for all sinners who will receive and believe in Him. Final. Final, because Jesus has entered into heaven and this is where He remains until the day He is sent back by God the Father to take us, sent back here to come and get us, to take us to be with Him. Final. Final because His work here on the earth and because there is nothing left to be done and so we can rest in the fact that it's finished. His work here is done. Final, because Jesus is the only way for any man, every man, any woman, every woman to enter into the presence of God. Jesus is the only way. There's not another way. There's not another path. There's not another option. And Jesus, hear this, is, a, is the better tabernacle. He's the better mediator. Why? Because we gain good things. We gain forgiveness. We gain righteousness. We gain adoption. We gain inheritance. We gain a pure conscience. We gain fulfillment as we enter into fellowship with God, our Creator. So everything about the New Covenant speaks to the finality and completeness. And because it's superior in its finality, Okay, if it's, if it's all done, if it's final, if it's complete, if we're complete in Him, what is left for us? It says it right here. This is what we do. We wait. We wait. We wait with anticipation and expectation of His promised return. We wait. I leave you with this. Psalm 32. Verses 1-2, through two, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Will you stand? I want to leave you with a quote from Charles Spurgeon about this waiting. Charles Spurgeon says this. He said, It ought to be a daily disappointment when our Lord does not come. It ought to be a daily disappointment when our Lord does not come. Guys, what this means is like when we get to the end of our day and we are laying our head on our bed to go to sleep and we've been waiting with anticipation and expectation, we should be disappointed that Jesus did not come today. Listen, he says it ought to be a, 
a daily disappointment when our Lord does not come. Instead of being, as I fear it is, a kind of foregone conclusion that He will not come just yet. How sad. And Father, I pray that as we wait, it would be with the expectation that today is the day. Lord, You could come today. We want You to come today. And great Father, as we, we, we see who we are in You, what's available to us through Your priestly ministry, through the blood that has been shed for us, offered for us, presented for us. Father, we stand here with grateful hearts ready to rejoice and worship You. With lives that are waiting upon Your return. And so we pray, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, Amen.